What we fear also one day is a pandemic that truly decimates the human population. And of course, many people think the human population is too high. And that fact alone is resulting in the despoiling of the planet, the ruination of our environments, the exacerbation of climate catastrophe and the unleashing of viruses we have no business coming into contact with. We're heading for 8 billion humans, and the United Nations modelling suggests 8.5 billion plus in 10 years or so, 10 billion by 2050, and by the end of the century, just over 11 billion before a measure of decline. That measure of decline is what we want to discuss, and other models suggest far earlier decline in a population, even a population of 6 billion and shrinking, by the time a small bump uh, emerging in the world today is an older person. New Zealand's total fertility rate in 2020, for example, was down to 1.61 births per woman, uh, or birthing person if you prefer. It's lowest recorded level and well below the population replacement rate of 2.1, according to Stats New Zealand. So, hence the natalism movement with big money behind it, especially in the US. Government money in many other countries like China and Russia trying to stem population decline through enticements to women to have more babies. China is forecast to lose nearly half of its people by 2100, believe it or not. That's what the models reckon. South Korea and Spain are in a similar place. Germany as well. Around 30% of countries on the planet now have pro-natalist policies in place. Elon Musk reckons that population uh, decline is a much bigger issue than climate change. Malcolm and Simone Collins are venture capitalists in Pennsylvania who founded the non-profit pronatalist.org. Uh, Simone, Mal- Malcolm, hello. Hello. Hello, it is great to be here. The world population is still going up. So what are natalists so worried about, please? So even a very few countries can make it seem as if there is not a fertility problem in the world right now. But if that is the future of the world we're heading into, it will be a much more culturally homogenous world, um, which we see as a bad thing because we think that the world's greatest strength is human diversity. Culturally homogenous, Malcolm? I mean, here we have... Māori and Pacific women still at 2.1, the rest of the country not so much, as you know. So it would seem that diversity would be increased rather than cultural, you know. Well, so New Zealand is pretty unique in that respect. So in America, the native population has a fertility rate of something like 1.2 which is catastrophically lower than, I guess what I'll call them, the European immigrant population. Um, uh, So I I think that it is true that New Zealand is one of the only cases I know of where the native population actually has a higher fertility rate than the immigrant population. But generally, that's not true. Uh, When we look at cultural groups, and what we call this is is prosperity-induced fertility collapse, because it's something that happens to cultural groups as they get wealthier. And typically, the the rate of fertility collapses is correlatory with how much wealth a a country has or a family has. So you see this across countries and within countries. Simone, how did the two of you, before we continue, and Malcolm said a bit that needs uh, extra unpacking, how did the two of you get involved in the pro-natalist movement? 
Uh, so it really started when Malcolm started working in venture capital in South Korea. And in that role, of course, it's his imperative, especially because he was the firm's uh, director of strategy, to look into the far future. And extrapolating into the future, he realized that the population was going to collapse in a way that severely undermined not only the economy, but cities' infrastructure, the government, I mean, everything. And he would ask the partners of his firm, like, hey, this is an issue. Are you what, What's being done about this? This is kind of a really big deal. They were like, oh, yeah, everyone knows this is an issue, but like we're a venture capital firm. We're supposed to invest. If we accepted how bad the situation was, there would be no point in investing anything in South Korea because there is no future to the economy here. And so to give you an idea of how bad things are in South Korea right now, even if the fertility rate does not continue to collapse at their current fertility rate, which is like 0.78 or something, for every 100 South Koreans, there's going to be about six great-grandchildren, all right? An economy cannot survive a 94% population collapse. And I think a lot of people haven't really projected this type of stuff out into the future. So if you look at something like New Zealand, right, that went from a fertility rate of 2.17 in 2010 to 1.61 around 2020, that's a fertility collapse of about 25.8% per decade. Now, if you project that forward and assume one uh, uh, generation every 30 years, for every 100 New Zealanders, that means you'll have about 33 children, 4.4 grandchildren, and 0.24 great-grandchildren. And this is just not the way that we have developed the world to work. Now, it would be great if, as a world, we could see uh, a stable decline of, of, of population. We are not for a continued increase in world population at all. Um, but what we are for is a sustainable solution that maintains global cultural pluralism and doesn't lead to an economic collapse, uh, the likes of which our species has never seen. If we do not intervene, and many nations are starting to wake up to this problem and realize how serious it is, we are going to see what we call a hard landing on demographic collapse. And that is bad in quite a few different ways. Um, like I alluded to earlier, a sudden and unprepared for drop in population can undermine city infrastructure, pension funds, the economy, government stability. But as Malcolm also alluded to, we're really concerned about the disappearance of low fertility rate cultures, which bring unique perspectives to the table, such as South Koreans, but also Native Americans, Emiratis, Jains. A lot of these groups uh, are just really going to disappear. And we think that that's really sad, though it is also tractable. We think that demographic, we know that demographic collapse is inevitable, that populations, as they become more educated, as they become more prosperous, and as they they allow for gender equality, are going to see a decline in birth rates. And that's fine. All we're trying to do is make sure that we have a soft landing rather than a hard landing on this decline. A big cause of this problem is that our social infrastructure right now and our um, economic infrastructure doesn't allow people to have the families that they want to have. Speaking of which, and speaking of healthy cultural ecology, before we get back to all the larger issues, Elon Musk, I think, has talked about it a lot, and he has around about 10 children, I think. How many are you two aiming for, Simone? We will have as many children as we possibly can. So we already have uh, three, four is on the way, due in April. We're really excited. Um, because I am carrying all our children, we don't use surrogates. 
um, eventually I'm going to have a complication in delivery and lose my uterus possibly more because at this point I'm forced to have C-sections. But if we can have 10 kids, we'll have 10. If we can have 12 kids, we'll have 12. We really, really love having a big family. We want to have a big family and we will keep going until we stop. And that's the really big thing about demographic collapse and pronatalism is there's a really big misunderstanding that pronatalists and the pronatalist movement is about pressuring people who don't have kids or don't want kids into having kids, which is not what the movement is all about. Really, when you actually look at long-term trends and what really uh, addresses demographic collapse or what, what props up birth rates, it's not families that have one or two children, it's families that have five, six, or seven children. So really what the pronatalist movement is about is about empowering and equipping parents who want to have a lot of kids or parents who want to have more kids to do so, not to shame people into having kids or force people into having kids, which is really what we see when we have that hard landing on demographic collapse. Um, for example, in China, we're already seeing access to vasectomy clinics, abortions, and birth control curtailed, which is really scary. So really, ironically, the, the handmaid's tale that people are so afraid of really depends on people who are feminist having a lot of kids, people who want to maintain reproductive freedom and, and, and bodily autonomy having kids, because if they don't, people who represent those views just won't inherit the future. If it turns out the only way for cultural groups to survive is to force women to have children, then the only cultural groups that survive will be the ones who force women to have children. Yeah. And that is a horrifying world. It may be this perception that the more time you need to spend on kids or the harder it is to have kids or the bigger deal it is to have kids, the fewer kids people ultimately have when they have freedom to choose. So this is measured by things like whether or not they think it's ethical for a woman to work full time and have kids. Uh, the other thing that goes against, I think, conservative intuitions is when you control for um, uh, uh, the prosperity of a country, countries with more diverse populations typically have a higher fertility rate one in that country than countries with less diverse populations. So if you look at the wealthy countries with the lowest fertility rate, you know, you're looking at places like South Korea, or if you're looking at the ones with the highest fertility rate, you're, you're looking at countries like the U.S. or uh, Israel or France, which typically have unusually a high diversity rates. Yeah, which is interesting, and I'll get back to that. I want to, before we continue with the larger issue, I want to talk about the two of you a bit. You've used genetic testing, I think, to optimize traits in your children, and critics call this eugenics, seeking perfect humans and ipso facto consigning non-perfect babies you know, to a lower tier of humanity. How do the two of you react to that criticism? Because I'm sure you've heard it. What we believe and what we advocate to, for is reproductive choice. We believe, a, you know, a, a woman's reproductive choice should be her choice and that cultural group's choice. And when people ban this type of technology, one, they're sterilizing people like us, essentially, because they're saying, oh, your your fertility practices um, are, are dirtying the gene pool or in some way creating like genetically dirty humans that they don't want. And then the other group that they keep from having kids is generally disabled people, because a lot of disabled people, and you can see some advocates around this, like the, I think the guy who founded Action did some advocacy work around this. Uh, they're like, I would have kids if I knew I was able to have kids without them having to live with these challenges that I have lived with. Yeah, I, I'm not quite sure of your phrase dirtying the gene pool, because I presume the accusation, Malcolm, is that you're trying to perfect the gene pool, which is where the eugenics accusation comes in. I, I'm I can, I can 
Yeah. So typically when people talk with us about this, they are really deeply afraid that there will be some second or third order effects of the type of genetic selection that we're doing. That typically reveals a a deeper misunderstanding of what we're doing because we're not CRISPR at gene editing our babies. We are selecting based on polygenic risk scores, which are not deterministic. They're just basically saying things like, hey, this embryo has a 15% higher risk of developing ovarian cancer than this embryo. These are very you know, broad and, and imperfect scores. So we're only selecting among embryos that we already have. We're only selecting among rough risks of things. And there will be no second or third order effects because, I mean, in, in the end, when people either conceive naturally or select embryos via IVF, they're either choosing randomly or doing what we're doing, which is looking at some additional data. Even when you look at IVF, which really has only been around for a little more than 30 years, you know, when this first came out, people were very concerned about this. They thought that this, these test tube babies were going to come out weird in some way or have some really strange you know, aberrations associated with them that would come out later. Mm. And now everyone's quite used to it. I think something like close to 10% of, of babies in the United States are conceived via IVF now. Um, so this is one of those things that over time is going to become normalized. But right now, yes, a lot of people, even very educated people, um, believe that this is this is indeed dirtying the gene pool. They think that basically we shouldn't be allowed to reproduce that if I have fertility problems, that means that I shouldn't be permitted to have kids at all because evolution essentially has said she is not fit. I understand that argument. So you can't really guarantee, Simone, that your children won't be prone to obesity and anxiety or prone to ovarian cancer. It's not as crisp as that. Yeah, my mother died quite young due to ovarian cancer that was not found until it was stage four. Um, and you know, when we, when we look at our children, we want to do everything we can to reduce the odds that they experience that now, even because like, even though our children may have elevated cancer risk or some other health risk associated with them, these polygenic risk scores are incredibly helpful for parents because they allow us to say here, kid is where you're going to need to get early screening. This is important. And had my mom had knowledge of her elevated risk for ovarian cancer or other forms of cancer, she would have gotten early screening that could have saved her life. So here's the thing, like we have conservative leanings. My wife and I have conservative leanings. That's no no secret. But I am alarmed by progressives disappearing. There is a great replacement happening right now around the world, but it's conservative cultural groups replacing progressive cultural groups. And that's going to have the significant long-term effect. The future of the world is going to look very different from the future today. The moment that really shocked us, shocked us into really caring about fertility rates is when we first started thinking about this, we're like, yeah, so there's just going to be a lot more religious people in the future. Like that was our intuition. And like, I like religious people, whatever. Like that's not anything to worry about. So then we ran a statistic in the US. So we, we used uh, data from Clear Thinking and a researcher from Mayo Clinic and we went through all the data uh, on the election cycle to find out what was most correlated with high fertility rates um, or what like political beliefs were most correlated. And it turned out the most correlated thing was actually xenophobia. And that's where we were like, "Uh uh-oh. Well, xenophobia and a tendency towards a preference for strict hierarchical power structures. These are Um, people who answer yes to, or who uh, in response to questions along the lines of, would you be deeply disturbed if your son or daughter married someone outside your race or culture? And they would say, you know, deeply disturbed. That is that group, which had us very concerned because we think that there's a lot to be gained from learning from outside groups, from uh, responding to them, from interacting. Um, and the groups that appear to be inheriting the future, the direction we're taking is people who 
were deeply suspicious um, and even hostile toward outside groups. The yeah. other group that is extremely vehement in uh, stating that they are pro-natalist is groups that are against abortion for religious reasons, which is entirely logically consistent. But actually, when you look at the data, banning abortions does not help with fertility rates. So from a policy perspective, we're entirely neutral on abortions. Banning them doesn't help. Encouraging them doesn't help. They are not really an important factor. The ironic thing is that we are very much in favor of sustainability in the environment. If everyone who cares about the environment stops having kids, um, the culture of stewardship, the culture of caring about the environment and fighting for sustainability is going to disappear with them. Uh, basically, environmentalism is dependent on environmentalists having kids and raising them in a culture that encourages them to be stewards of the environment. You seem, Simone, to be calling for a nicer kind of person to be cultivated in society. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's what you really want. You want custodians of the planet. Now, OK, you're not your genesists, but that's what you're asking for. No, actually, what we really want is, like I keep saying, a a diverse pluralistic ecosystem here. Yeah. We want a lot of people who frankly disagree with each other um, and have a lot of different philosophies and approaches to the world. If in a thousand years we face some new existential problem, what is more likely to carry through human civilization? Um, three different cultures trying to attack this with their solutions or 72 different cultures trying to attack this with different solutions? We're always better off with a plurality of of skill sets, of viewpoints, of value sets. And, and that's, again, why we're in this fight. We want people who disagree with us, who do not like us, um, who think very differently from us to have kids, because we feel like the, the future of humanity depends upon a lot of different opinions, all contributing to ultimately the same fight. I want to ask you about how the movement's being funded. It's reported that New Zealander Peter Thiel and others have given fertility centres up to around $80 billion, which seemed an enormous sum, or will have done over the next couple of years. So this is so it's coming out of Silicon Valley, uh, the money uh, to a certain extent for pronatalism. And, but this is the sort of initiative you support as well, both of you. So why is it coming out of Silicon Valley? I think this is an interesting thing. People are like, why are so many of the like loud pronatalists tied to the venture capital scene in Silicon Valley? The answer is, is because venture capitalists are one of the only careers in the world today where you have to regularly project what's going to happen 50 to 100 years in the future. You know, if I'm on Wall Street, I'm projecting five, 10 years in the future, which means that venture capitalists are going to be the first people that see this sort of uh, unavoidably in the data that they're looking at. It's all happening without you, though. I mean, already nearly two dozen countries are getting smaller every year, including Poland, Cuba, Japan. According to the stats in the book Empty Planet by two Canadians, Daryl Bricker and John Ibbotson, and we talked to Daryl Bricker, uh, and they said once that decline begins, it will never end, which I think Simone alluded to earlier. So people, yep. uh, again, people listening will still be thinking, despite the efforts of Simone and Malcolm, we are going to be shrinking in population. That's just an absolute given. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you'd both agree with it, that. No matter what we do, the Titanic is hitting the iceberg at this point. 
All we are trying to do is ready as many lifeboats as possible. That is the goal of the movement. It's really interesting how much the data contrasts with people's intuitions around this. When we talk about this in the U.S., people are like, oh, well, we can just solve this with immigration. And I point out to them, by even by the U.N.'s own statistics, as of 2019, collectively, South America, Central America, and the Caribbean fell below repopulation rate. You know, you look at countries like India, and even this year, they fell below repopulation rate. If the developed world's economy is reliant on immigrants from desperately poor countries, then you create an economic incentive to prevent those countries from developing. Why should any population decline be permanent inexorable? I want to repeat this point because I can. I know Simone says that, that incentives don't work, but I can see politicians of the future exhorting women to breed more, as has been done in the past, for the sake of prosperity. Why wouldn't that work? So if we shrank to a billion people on the earth or even 100,000, why couldn't that be turned around? The beautiful thing about pronatalism as a cause area is we can look around the world and see countries that are further along the timeline than we are now. When I was talking about South Korea, right, like this is a country where the fertility rate is already desperately low, like 0.79. What that means is, and worse, you're like, okay, well, it's low, but they could get it up at this point, right? Well, they spent something like $200 billion trying to get it up in like the past 10 years to no effect. Worse, 60% of the country's population right now is over the age of 40. Another intergenerational problem we're dealing with is global warming. People really struggle in terms of dealing with problems where their actions, like, like they don't see the effects on their life while they're still alive. And intrinsically, you know, you don't see the effects of collapsing fertility rate until future generation. But when people finally see the writing on the wall, when people finally see that the global population is plummeting, that's when they realize that change is necessary. That's why I've never quite been able to see the full doom scenario here. You don't see the population plummeting until the population is already so old you can't fix the problem. Okay, let's bring this back to the microcosmic level, Simone. The temptation to have big families is great if you can afford it. Um, The noise and the fun and Christmas morning and so on. Uh, For some people, of course, not all. But who will be able to afford it? I mean, only people like you, presumably. Actually, when you look at birth rates within a, a nation, typically families that are lower on the income scale have more kids. So there's sort of this weird depression um, where with the middle class, where that is sort of the group that has the fewest kids. And what we intuitively have come to inc- conclude, and many of our peers have come to the same conclusion, is that basically the more involved you are in the typical industrial economy, that is to say, the more of a day job you have that kind of obligates you to work, to stay in school, to not be home, the fewer kids you have. So it's not really a a product of work. It's a product of availability. So it's not actually about resources. Um, Although, of course, there are many families who would like to have more kids than they have. A lot of this ultimately comes down to culture. And that's one of the biggest interventions that we wish governments would look more closely at. The way that families are raising kids today are incredible. It's just so unsustainable. Even when you looked at how the most wealthy and privileged children were raised, you know, 200, 300 years ago, they were not getting anywhere close to the amount of resources and attention and and adult time that is expected of children today. Um, There's also some really fascinating research that shows how 
well-meaning policies, well-intentioned policies have major dampening effects on fertility. For example, there's a great paper called On Car Seats uh, as Contraception, which details how basically overzealous car seat rules are effectively preventing families from having uh, more kids or the number of kids they would really like because it is so cumbersome and difficult to adhere to car seat laws, which at this point really? in the United States, for example, oh yeah, in the United States, you need a full out like giant car seat for a kid as uh, as old as eight. So eight is sort of the earliest that you're going to start to see a kid get out of a big car seat these days, which is insane. Then um, it makes it really hard for many families to have more kids because that means they have to buy an entirely new car, something they often don't have the cash to do. Yeah, we have. Um, so there's a <laughs> We haven't thought of arguments like that. I was just—I've got to ask you why, because this is an aside, but there's probably a reason that's interesting. Why did you call your youngest daughter Titan Invictus out of interest? We believe that the type of name that you give to a kid does really shape their personality, and we have already seen this with our kids to a ridiculous extent. Um, for example, our our, our middle son, uh, his name is Torsten, and he literally like Thor's stone, and he walks around with a rock in his hand all the time. This is not something we encouraged him to do. It's just weird. Um, but we really want names that shape our children, um, and as a result of that, we do not want to give any of our daughters uh, girls' names um, because we believe that they would benefit from taking on more masculine and assertive traits. Isn't this gender betrayal to an extent, um, insisting that Titan Invictus is uh, a masculine name because that will advantage her? Well, I mean, based on the data that we have available to us now, um, men perform better in many of the measures that we personally care about for our culture. Now, there are many more matriarchal cultures that would really prefer for feminine traits to, to be dominant, and that's fine. They're welcome to do that. But we see that um, people who exhibit more masculine traits tend to build more, tend to earn more, tend to achieve more. And we want that for all of our children, regardless of their gender. Well, and she means this from studies. So if you look at studies of women who have feminine names versus gender neutral names, they're much more likely to go into like liberal arts degrees than STEM degrees. Um, so and, and a lot of people can be like, this is weird. This is horrible. Like, how, how dare you do this to your kids? Because it's going to other them from the dominant social group in our society, this urban monoculture. But if you look at the high fertility groups, pretty much wherever they are in the world, they look like weirdos from the perspective of the common, the dominant cultural group, which is a very low fertility cultural group. So whether or not you're talking about like Hasidic Jewish populations or Amish populations or any population that is high fertility, they're going to look and act weird, whereas weird is defined as deviant from the dominant cultural group. Okay, I get that. The, um, the final thing I want to talk about is that women obviously don't want... Uh, more children. Some of that may be that they have to work more now, more of them. Some of it may be that families can't afford to be big. Um, you can't tell all these people to close their eyes and breed, can you? And there's a profound as aside, again, to be mentioned here. The chorus of women's voices all around the world saying they're unhappy with the traditional cohabitation model. You know, woman needs man and man must have his mate from the song As Time Goes By. It's no longer subscribed to by women, Simone, even impoverished women. Yeah, and I really support that. And I want them to have the freedom to not get married and not have kids if they don't want to. There's also a ton of women out there who really want to have kids and families. Um, and they're the ones that are ultimately going to shape the future. But again, the right of people to not have marriages or families or kids depends on people who support that choice, having kids and raising them in a culture that supports that the culture that they pass on to future generations. So we we really believe in that. In fact, uh, I, I think 
if had I not met Malcolm and had I not found the right circumstances in a culture that's frankly quite antinatalist for raising kids, I would have not had kids and been very happy with that choice. And I think that's really telling about where we are in society in that it is so difficult these days to end up in a very supportive, good relationship where frankly, Malcolm does way more parenting than I do. Um, and, and to end up in a circumstance that allows you to have children comfortably without you know, worrying about being able to feed them without worrying about their safety, um, that, you know, this is just where we've gotten. And it's so not necessary with just a few policy shifts, with a few shifts in cultural focus and expectations, because frankly, as I alluded to earlier, the expectations around parenting right now are ridiculous and not correlated with good children's outcomes. They're just overkill. Um, this is leading to, you know, huge anxiety problems in kids. This is leading to helicopter parented kids who are entirely disempowered when they become adults who don't know how to do their own laundry, who never built independence or built emotional uh, resilience. So yeah, I would just say that we support people's choice to not have kids. We also think that we live in a very antinatalist culture that encourages that. And frankly, if we shifted just a few things about our culture, a lot more people would be excited to have kids. Um, and raise their kids in a culture that allowed for everyone to have choice. Urbanisation is the great contraceptive, though, isn't it? And the world continues to urbanise, Malcolm. Yeah, it does. And I think creating cultures that are pro-women or pro-gender equality and high fertility requires cultural experimentation. And that's one of the things my wife and I have found ourselves doing, you know, uh, while we live in an equal relationship and that we are co-CEOs of the same company, we co-host our podcast, we co-write our books, we co-parent. Um, this is not, I think, the form of gender equality that many people imagine when they think of gender equality. They think of atomized gender equality, um, where both people are equal but working separately. Um, and so is it an experiment? It may work, it may not work. We're in this great age of cultural experimentation where we get to find out what sort of technophilic, high fertility cultural groups can exist and can work. And many of them, maybe even our own, are going to die out. Great to talk with both of you and um, to hear you explain the movement. Thank you both very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.